I woke up this morning before my alarm went off. The alarm will show up in the service today. Just hang on. And as I uh, turned on my phone, the news came up, and I discovered today is the International Day of the Sloth. (laughs) Now, I think that was planned to be such a day about six years ago, but it took them about six years to get it to happen. So the sloths were advertising for the sloth. And you'll hear the sloth come up in the message today. And the third thing before we begin, you know these candlesticks and candles represent the churches, and these bulbs that are lit represent the angel of the church. This is Sardis we look at today. It's not very bright. You'll get that in a while. Let me begin by introducing and giving you a context to the church in Sardis. Sardis was located inland and north of Ephesus and Smyrna, south of Pergamum and Theatira. It was in the Hermas Valley region. The Hermas was a very important prime trade river in Asia. It is along the banks of the Pactolus, tributary of the Hermas, and there were many beautiful cliffs It was atop one of these 1,500-foot cliffs that Sardis was built. It made for a gorgeous view. Everyone had a view in Sardis. It was sort of a watchtower for the entire Hermas Valley. The location also made for an almost undefeatable defense in a time of battle. The sides of the cliff being so steep, the entrances were easy to defend. The nearby region was called Phrygia. It had the finest sheep, and it became, Sardis did, the marketplace for the wool that was produced. In addition to the dye trade, which also flourished in Sardis, thus Sardis became the fashion center of Asia, much like Paris or New York could be considered today. Because of the fashion and trade industry, because of the gold that was reported to be in the Pactolus River, Sardis was a very wealthy city. Its citizens were well-off, very well-dressed, and felt very secure. But as is often the case, things are not as they might appear on the surface. In the days of the Apostle John, the city of Sardis was still very wealthy, but it had become degenerate. Most of the people now lived near the Pactolus River in the valley, and the cliffs contained only the ruins, the ancient monument of their glory days. Twice these people had lost their city because they were overconfident, and as a result, too lazy, or one might say slothful, to keep watch. Listen to what was given to John to say to the church in Sardis from Revelation chapter 3. Write this to the angel, to the church of Sardis. These are the words of the one who holds God's seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, and you are in fact dead. Wake up and strengthen whatever you have left teetering on the brink of death. For I found that your works are far from complete 
in the eyes of my God. So, remember what you received and heard. Hold on to it and change your hearts and lives. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know what time I will come upon you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who haven't stained their clothing. They will walk with me clothed in white because they are worthy. Those who emerge victorious will wear white clothing like this. I won't scratch out their names from the scroll of life, but will declare their names in the presence of my Father and his angels. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Father, help us hear what you say to the churches and to us, the church at Bethany. In the name of Christ, amen. Jesus begins as has the pattern has been in every church we've looked at. He begins by identifying himself, Revelation 3, 1, the first part. Write this to the angel of the church in Sardis. These are the words of the one who holds God's seven spirits and the seven stars. Jesus identifies himself by a number. Today, Jesus is being brought to us by the number seven. He's holding the seven spirits of God. I didn't know there were seven spirits of God. Well, you need to understand numerology a little bit to understand what he's saying here. In numerology, seven is the perfect number. It's the number of completeness. It's the number of fullness. When he created all that was made and all that exists to this day, he did it in six days, but there was one more day to come, the day of rest, of Sabbath for us, a rhythm of how we live our lives, giving God one day and seven to focus on him. Not that we don't focus on him every day, but in particular, this is a day when his people are called to gather, to worship, to celebrate, to bless, and to hear what he has to say to us. He's holding the seven spirits of God means he's holding the fullness, the completeness, the totality of God. Jesus just wasn't a part of God. He had all of God. He was God. He is God. There is no part of God that he does not possess and always possessed. He's the fullness of God. He's also holding the seven stars. Those have already been defined early in Revelation 120 as the angels of the seven churches, and literally the term is angels. Some commentators, however, suggest that it might figuratively point to the leaders of those churches. Now think about that. I've known many church leaders, and I am one myself. I'm not sure we would consider ourselves as angels. You know what I mean? So I'd rather stick with the angelic thought here. It's the angels. So the message of this identification Jesus is making to this church might read this way. These are the words that come from the one who possesses the full and complete life of God and who also dispenses and oversees the life of God to his church. There's nothing more that's needed. He's got it all. He gives it all. He oversees it all. 
Then to follow the pattern that's been set by all the messages to the other churches, we move to where Jesus praises the church at Sardis. Oh my. There's nothing wrong with the projector. Because he doesn't praise the church at Sardis. It's the only church that's not praised. Unlike the others that receive praise for something, Sardis receives praise for nothing. So we move on, and Jesus identifies a problem. Revelation 3.1b. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, and you are, in fact, dead. Yes, the church at Sardis had a reputation of being Christian, being one of Christ's, which is what Christian means. That certainly depicts life. Jesus conquered death by his resurrection. He promised abundant, full, complete, eternal life to those who receive him as Lord. But the reputation of Sardis exceeded its reality. They had name only. They were not alive. Their light was extremely dim. Jesus declares that they're dead. That's not a new thought. Jesus' half-brother, James, another child of Mary and Joseph, who became the leader of the first church in Jerusalem, writes this in his letter, the very first piece of the New Testament ever written. And in James 2, we read, My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked, has never had enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. I recall times in my early walk with Christ where my activity did not measure up at all to the declaration of who Jesus was in my life. Faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. There are three kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death. My body dies, I'm no longer present here. Like Lazarus, I've been laid in a tomb, I've been there for three days, I'm gone. I'm dead. The life that was there that made the body work and move and breathe and speak is gone. The body is just dead. That's physical death. There's also spiritual death, or it's also called the second death. I'm separated from God in a place called hell. Jesus, speaking of this kind of death in Matthew 10, 28, says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's spiritual death. And the third is called spiritually dead. That is, I am dead in my sin, though my body still lives. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, referring to him as, quote, He who was dead and is alive again, end of quote. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes of people's lives before receiving Christ as a time when they were, 
quote, dead in their trespasses and sins, end of quote. In the movie Dead Man Walking, it's an example of being spiritually dead of sorts. As someone who is about to be executed, they take them out of their final cell as they walk through the uh, penitentiary towards the death chamber. They say, dead man or dead woman walking. They're alive. It's soon over. They're really dead. It is this third notion of death, spiritually dead, that fits this message today to Sardis. Being alive in our physical body but dead in our sin is how they were. What is sin? You have to be a sports person to understand sin. Because sin is a sports term, technically, in the sport of archery. When you are loading up your compound bow, or if you're a real archer, a recurve, and you get ready to shoot, if you hit the bullseye, you've made it. If you miss it, it's called a sin. Missing the mark of perfection, missing the bullseye, is a sin. And so when King James, thanks to Gutenberg and the printing press, was able to put the Bible into English and have it printed, sin became the term to describe missing the mark of God's perfection, God's will for our lives. And it was kind of like a, a sports jockey was interpreting the Bible for us. Imagine Sports Center doing an interpretation of the Bible. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? But it's so true. We can talk about gathering as a church like a huddle. This is our huddle. How we huddle is not so important, frankly. It's the game that we play once we leave the huddle and do the work of the ministry. See how the sports can help play some of these things. Almost everything in life can be used to describe the way the faith is to be lived out. Well, sin is one of those ways in the sport of archery. While sin's long-term result is eternal death, it also kills three very important things in our lives right now, which we need to know about. Sin kills our feelings. The process of becoming a slave to sin doesn't happen overnight. The first time we disobey and we know it, there can be many qualms. But the day comes if we continue to do what is forbidden when the qualm is gone and the feelings have become petrified. They have died. Sin kills our feelings. Sin also kills our will. If a person accepts the invitation of sin and entertains it long enough, the time comes when nothing else can be accepted. The will dies to the power of the habit, the addiction, the sin, and that habit, that sin, that addiction, that obsession, that compulsion becomes nearly unbreakable. It requires a definite intervention by the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. And the third thing sin kills is all that's lovely. Sin takes what is beautiful and makes it ugly. Yearning to be the best can easily become a craving for power. 
The wish to serve can become an intoxication for ambition. The desire of love can become the passion and the negative power of lust. Sin kills our feelings, it kills our will, it kills all that is lovely, which is why we're told in Scripture to flee from it, to seek God's help and the help of our sisters and brothers to not participate in it. Why, when we're going to be caring and helping one another, we're meant to help keep people from sin in their lives, not to keep them from experiencing good things, but to keep them from experiencing that which kills them eternally, but also now with their feelings, their will, and all that is lovely. The church at Sardis seemed alive and prosperous, and most likely it was the best-dressed church in all of Asia, present-day Turkey. But it had died. The feelings of delight with Jesus had died. The feelings of sorrow at sin in their lives and their community had died. The will to follow Jesus had died. And all that was meant to be lovely for them in a challenging culture had died. So Jesus identified the problem. He also identifies his desired response. Listen to what is said. Wake up, strengthen whatever you have left, teetering on the brink of death, For I found that your works are far from complete in the eyes of my God. So remember, remember what you received and heard. Hold on to it. Change your hearts and lives. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you won't know what time I will come upon you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who haven't stained their clothing. They will walk with me clothed in white because they are worthy. Two things to note in this main statement that I want to raise up for you today. The first is this. Wake up. We're told to wake up. The alarm clock's gone off. My oldest boy, who's now 48, and a father of three children, when he was a preteen and teenager, never heard an alarm clock. Did it go off? Oh, it did. We bought two additional alarm clocks for him. We set them up at various points in his bedroom. He never heard one of them. The rest of the house was awakened by his alarm clocks, but he never heard them. He was a great sleeper. His idea of sleeping in was to wake up and go, I can do this some more, and he did. That was his style. He now gets up early in the morning. His wife has become the alarm clock for him. I don't think he still hears an alarm clock in his life. But here in this text, to the church at Sardis, the Lord is saying, wake up, wake up. The Sardians lost their city on two occasions because they had not been awake. They had been unalert. Let me give you a historical story here. In 546 B.C., Hundreds of years prior to the revelation of John, when Chrysus was king of Sardis, it was at the peak of its wealth and its power. Confident and proud, Chrysus the king began a campaign against Cyrus of Persia. I don't know what he was thinking, but he was thinking something strange. So he took his army, left Sardis, and went to battle. 
Cyrus, no surprise, began to rout Croesus, so he returned to Sardis. Once inside the city gates, he felt safe and secure again, for this was an unbeatable defense. For 14 days, Cyrus surrounded the city, and there you see where it used to be at the top of that crag. Very difficult to get to, very easy to defend. Finally, after 14 days, he offered a reward to any of his soldiers who could find entry into the fortress. A soldier named Hierides received the reward. He'd been watching two Sardian soldiers on the city gate's wall. He noticed that the helmet of one fell over the edge. They were just two guys fooling around. You know how guys can get. And one of the helmets went over the side. He watched as that soldier proceeded to climb down the wall and following some crack lines in the cliff, retrieved the helmet. Later that night, Hierides led a band of Persian soldiers up the crack in the rock. When they reached the top, they found there was no one at the battlements. There was no one on the ramparts. The Sardians were so confident that their fortress would hold anyone at bay that no one stood watch at night. Hierides then proceeded to the gate of the city, opened it, and the Persian troops came in, and Sardis was overthrown and ransacked. Oddly enough, that story repeated itself a few hundred years later when Greece ruled the world, and once again, no one was watching The security was lax and Sardis fell. So when Jesus said to this church, wake up, they knew exactly what he was talking about. It wasn't just an alarm clock to go off. It was an overconfidence and a slothfulness, a laziness that had overcome them in their lives. What God wanted for them was alertness because the enemy of their faith had breached their defenses and they were no longer alive in Jesus Christ. They'd become wealthy, self-sufficient, and as a result, overconfident and therefore lazy. A second thing that he says in this text is wash up. He speaks of those who soiled their garments. That is, their lives still reveal the integrity of a faith that lives. A faith that serves Jesus Christ, a faith that loves people, Colored robes mattered to the Sardians, but God wanted them to wear white. A white robe stood for purity. An honorable, noble person of integrity wore it. A white robe stood also for victory. It was the gown worn by the winners of great battles. Jesus was telling the Sardian Christians that they needed to clean up their lives. They needed to live out the life they say they have in Jesus Christ. So he tells them, So remember, remember, and that term is in the entire Bible over and over, not just on Holy Communion Sunday, but about everything that God has done. Remember what God has done. Count your blessings. Take a look. How did God deal with this? And over and over, we are reminded in the Bible to remember. Remember how you were once in awe of God? Jesus is saying to this church, get back to that. Remember how the Bible both comforted and challenged you? because you read and studied it? Get back to that. Remember how you obeyed what it said, both what not to do and what to do? Get back to that. 
Remember how people could tell that something was different in you and you openly told them about Jesus and the difference he'd made in your life? Get back to that. So wake up. Wash up. And then he makes a promise. Those who emerge victorious will wear white clothing like this. I won't scratch out their names from the scroll of life, but will declare their names in the presence of my Father and his angels. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Once again, Jesus calls Christians to overcome, not only by waking up, not only by washing up, but now by wising up. Wise up. They are called to be in a continual state of living out their faith in Christ, to be dressed in white, living lives of integrity, to be dressed in white, feasting on the grace of Jesus in and through them to others, to be dressed in white, celebrating the victory of Jesus that he has won and will win, even though the battle continues till his final return. But he has won the battle. He promises those who are overcoming, to those who are alert, to those who live with integrity, to those whose lives reveal God's will. He promises they will not have their names scratched out from the scroll of life. Do you hear that? Scratched out from the scroll of life. That is a very difficult text for people who hold a strict adherence to the doctrine of eternal security. It's not the only text like it. Eternal security, the notion that once I name Jesus as Lord, I'm included and cannot fall away. I cannot be unincluded. Well, listen again to what Jesus says. I will never scratch out his name, the ones who overcome. Does that mean that those who do not overcome will have their name scratched out? Does God have an eraser on his pencil? Does God have whiteout in his desk? Does God have a delete button on his computer? Better theologians and scholars than all of us combined have not solved that interesting conundrum. But I want to tell you, I don't want to take a chance on those things with a theology that is slim at best with texts like this. We can all know this. God is serious about his church overcoming a lack of alertness. God is also serious about his church overcoming a presumption of grace without the obvious signs of gracious living. He gave us grace to make us gracious. He gave us grace so that we could give grace away. He said it to Abraham in the very beginning before he was Abraham, when he was still Abram. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. We are meant to be the conduits of the grace of God, we who claim his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord. So what's transferable? Well, wake up, wash up, wise up is all transferable. Be alert to our faith in God. Be alert to the wiles of the enemy. Don't give the enemy an entrance into our life. Let's be alert. Wash up. Let's keep our living obedient to God's expectations, to live with integrity, 
not doing what God says, don't do this, and also doing what God says to do. If we hold a grudge, we're telling God we have a better plan. If we fail to forgive, no matter what it is, we're telling God we have a better plan. Jesus on the cross, in front of his accusers, in front of his executioners, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or as I like to say, Father, forgive them. They're clueless. How many people are clueless? How can we expect them to live right if they don't know God? We have enough trouble and we claim to know God. So God, help us to wash up, to confess and be made whole and wise up. Let's not presume upon the grace of God. Instead, let's live into the grace of God and allow it to live out through our lives. As we overcome, Jesus promises that we will be dressed in white, celebrating his victory, and will be included in his abundant and forever life. There's nothing better than that. So let's wake up. Let's wash up. Let's wise up. This is the gospel. This is the full gospel of our Lord. Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to his church. Pray with me. Help us to wake up, Lord, so that we do not miss your call in our life, so we do not hold the ground of faith and life you've won for us, so we do hold the ground of faith and life that you've won for us. Help us to wash up, Lord, to confess our sin, to seek your purity in how we think, feel, and behave, and thus reveal to the world how you are. Help us to wise up, Lord, so that finally we will end in your heavenly place and so that others by seeing, hearing, and following us may be there as well. In the name of Jesus, the one who holds your fullness and who holds the angels of the church, including this church, I pray. Amen.